This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast that follows our journey of investing. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Looking forward to this episode. We are hearing from, I guess you could say one of our white whales, an investor that we've been chasing and haven't managed to get him on the show yet. Unfortunately, we still haven't managed to get him in the studio, (laughs) but we will be hearing from him. (laughs) We will be hearing from him, Ren, you're right. That is Hamish Douglas, uh, perhaps the most informed and hottest fund manager in Australia at the moment. We would love to get him on the show at some point. And I have faith in you and I, Ren, that at some point, we will get Hamish on Equity Mates. I'm pretty confident that if we just keep complaining enough on the show, eventually we'll make it happen. (laughs) (laughs) Until then, we are going to hear from him today from an interview that he did with one of the general managers at Magellan, which is the fund manager that he helped set up, Magellan Asset Management, where he's currently the chief investment officer. Earlier in the week, he did a live webinar called What Really Matters? And, you know, having the ability to hear from Hamish for about an hour was pretty interesting. Alec and I managed to sit down and have a listen. So we thought we would share it with you guys, Ren. Yeah, well, I mean, the the whole point of Equity Mates is to try and bring the markets to the everyday investor and we'll try and do that through any way we can, even reproducing interviews if we think they're good quality and people can learn a lot from them. For me, I found it particularly interesting for a few reasons. There's obviously a lot of topical stuff going on with markets at the moment, probably none bigger than the US election. And I found Hamish's discussion of what the US election will mean for markets quite informative. And then Magellan obviously has some holdings in China. When we spoke to Chris Weldon from Magellan, he spoke about their investment in Tencent. I enjoyed Hamish's discussion of the Chinese market and in particular, Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce giant, and also Ant Financial that's being spun out of Alibaba. So for me, there was some interesting macro things around the US election and then also some company specific things that I found quite interesting. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation, Ren, you're right. Hearing from Hamish is pretty special and we've been fortunate enough to speak with Chris Weldon, who is his, I guess, right-hand man over at Magellan, leading the uh, High Conviction Fund. There's just such great quality coming out of Magellan. I was particularly interested in Hamish's comments around the ongoing impact of COVID and, and how markets are really looking at uh, the race for a vaccine and, and how that's sort of going to play out. So a lot to, to digest in this interview, but to your point, Ren, Equity Mates is all about making markets as accessible as possible. So whilst we can't have Hamish in the room with us, yet, uh, this is the next yet, the, yet, <laughs> yet, this is the next best thing. And we would encourage you all to actually go and check out the Magellan website. They've got a pretty comprehensive insights section on their website full of fantastic pieces of information to help you on your investing journey. So we thankfully had permission from Magellan to play this for you today. So we very much hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Yeah, now before we get in, we should ground it in its timing. So Hamish did this interview on Tuesday the 13th of October. So if he speaks about any 
particular prices or you know anything like that just uh, remember that that's when this interview was done nice well we'll leave it with you and hamish and looking forward to finally getting him in the room at some stage yeah, yeah. Bit, uh... <laughs> so welcome everyone to this live magellan webinar with our cio and uh, chairman hamish douglas We've got over 6,000 uh, registered to attend this uh, this live webinar, and we've still got people uh, logging in as we are going live. So thank you to uh, the advisors, the stockbrokers, the unit holders, the shareholders, uh, and media that have joined this uh, Zoominar uh, here today. And um Hopefully everyone's staying safe during this uh, ongoing pandemic. Um, and a special call out to our Victorian friends, we are thinking of you. Um, we have our disclaimer on screen now. Um, hopefully you've all had a chance to read it. That's good. Um, Hamish, we've literally had hundreds of questions that have been pre-submitted, um, well over 300, I think. Um, but the two that, that really do stand out are very much around the US election and, uh, and COVID-19. So let's open up with addressing those two in particular. Um, first up, we're about two weeks out from the US elections. From an investment perspective, how should we be thinking about the impact of that US election? Oh, well, thank you, Frank. And no, I'd like to join with you in thanking everyone for joining us uh, uh, today. Uh, it's great we can all do this by Zoom. It'd be nice when we can get together in person. And also to all our uh, friends in Victoria, um, we hope everything opens up uh, fairly shortly, but you look like you're, in, uh, you're on track uh, now, which is very good to see. The US elections, Frank, I hadn't noticed that there was a US uh, election on, and you're asking a very important question around investment perspective, but I can't answer the investment perspective without actually talking a little bit about uh, the election itself. If we look at the race for the White House, uh, Biden looks to be clearly in front at the moment. Uh, he's got a 10% plus lead in the national opinion polls uh, and a 3 to 4% lead in the key sort of battleground or marginal uh, states. The betting markets have a probability of sort of 80% plus that uh, Biden will take the White House. But if we go back to 2016, three to four weeks out, uh, Clinton had a 7% national poll lead and had a lead in each of these key uh, battleground uh, states. Um, and this was at the same time that the Ask Hollywood takes, tapes had been uh, released where uh, Trump had made some, you know, some very disparaging comments around uh, around women, and everyone said it was a layup that Clinton was going to win uh, that election. And then what happened, sort of two weeks out from the election, the FBI under Comey uh, reopened uh, that email saga, and the polls started to turn on on Clinton. And so what I'm saying is. Anything can happen. Clinton looked this far out that she was clearly in the lead. Biden looks clearly he's in the lead. But anything can happen from 2016. But I think it would take a real uh, surprise uh, from, uh, from here. Um, you really know where the White House is going to be won. You can follow where Trump is going. And, and this, this week he's headed to Florida. He was there on Monday. Then he's going to Pennsylvania. Then he's going to Iowa, and I think at the end of the week he's going to North Carolina. Um, other key states to watch would be Michigan and Wisconsin as well, those sort of key battleground uh, states. It's not about the national poll leads. Um, the first thing you've asked a question on markets, you know, how markets will react to the election. The first thing you need to look at in terms of markets is the prospects for an ugly contested election where the election result just isn't called. Uh, Trump's making a big issue about vo um, um, voting, um, uh, polling, about where people are going to mail in their, their, their votes and pre-poll voting and whether or not there's going to be fraud. There's no evidence of that, but I think that's going to be a very big issue if it's a close election. 
uh, and therefore it could get very ugly post-election. And, and markets just don't like uncertainty. So I think we should all prepare ourselves that we could we could get into that situation where we don't have result. Uh, it looks pretty ugly, and markets may well be volatile and uncertain during that. Uh, that period, but that will be a relatively short period. There will be an election uh, result. From a longer-term investment uh, perspective, what you really have to watch isn't whether Biden takes the White House. What you really have to watch is what happens in the in the Senate. It looks pretty likely at the moment the Democrats are going to keep the lower house, the House of Representatives. It looks at the moment 80% probability that Biden will be take the White House, but it's a much closer call of what's going to happen in the, in the Senate race in the United States. If Biden wins um, the White House and the Democrats get the lower house of the House of Representatives, but the Senate stays with the Republicans, I don't think a lot's going to happen from the market's perspective because at the end of the day, the Republicans will be able to block most sort of radical legislation that would be, uh, that would be put uh, through. The Senate is currently held, there's 100 seats in the US Senate. It's currently held 53 seats to the Republicans and 47 to the Democrats. It's probably closer to 54, 46 because it looks like Alabama, Alabama is going to go to the uh, Republicans. It's currently held by the Democrats. That means the Democrats are going to have to win four Senate seats to get to 50 50. And the reason I say four and not five. In the United States, if the Democrats were, whole, were going to hold 50 seats um, and they hold the White House, the vice president actually has the casting vote on any tied vote. So 50 is enough to, uh, to get control of the, the, the Senate. This season, it's a bit like Australia, 35 senates, senators are up for election, uh, 23 Republicans and 12 Democrats. The key races to watch are in around five seats. They're in Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, Iowa and Maine. The Democrats are ahead in each of these uh, seats. Iowa is probably the closest. It looks about a tie. It was clearly won last time um, uh, around. And it's ultimately going to depend on voter turnout in these uh, in these areas. And a massive amounts of money are being spent on these, on these key uh, Senate races. If the Democrats get the trifecta, and what I mean by the trifecta is they take the White House, they take the lower house, and they take the Senate. Um, they're still not in a position of total control because there's an there's an unusual rule in the Senate in the United States called the filibuster, which means to pass ordinary legislation, you actually need to get to 60 votes uh, to pass it without a sort of procedure that can indefinitely hold up legislation outside budgetary. Uh, legislation. Um, but the Democrats could actually change the Senate rules if they got control of the Senate, if they got 50 or more uh, senators. And this has started to be debated. Should they get rid of this um, uh, rule? It doesn't have universal support amongst all Democrats, particularly uh, senators, for removing that rule. But I think quickly we're going to get focused if they win this trifecta on these Senate rules, and if it starts to become clearer that they're starting to get behind if they win the trifecta, that they're going to change the rules in the Senate, then I think it starts to open up how markets would start to become more concerned. Would the agenda start to become more radical and more damaging uh, for, uh, 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 for markets? Um, so that's going to be a very interesting question, but we do have to understand it's a bit like what happens in Australia in politics, the Democrats aren't just one single voice. It's, a, it's effectively different factions. And there is a very large moderate faction in the, in the Democrats. Uh, um, Biden himself comes from this moderate uh, faction uh, here. So even if they were to remove the filibuster, I don't think it's that likely we're going to see the radical left agenda of the Democrats coming to, to, to the fore. It's, it, it just doesn't work like that, but the markets may be concerned. But overall, if Biden wins and even if the tri trifecta goes, um, we're not that concerned about a Democratic uh, win in the United uh, States, but expect some volatility in the immediate aftermath of the election, particularly if it's close. So I, I think Trump will challenge the uh, result. And of course, that creates 
uncertainty. So expect some volatility. Uh, but overall, the, the outcome of the election is, isn't really driving our behaviour uh, in what we're doing holistically in the portfolio. At, at individual stocks, it may be, but holistically, you know, overall risk appetite, it's not. Thanks, Hamish. And um, likewise, in case you hadn't noticed, we're well and truly into the uh, the global pandemic. Um, you've previously suggested that its impact on market, impact on the market, could be anything from fifty percent down to twenty percent up. Um, again, from an investment perspective, what's your take on the impact of COVID? Yeah, well, let, let, let's look at the known unknowns. Again, I wrote about this in the investor uh, letter. There's still considerable uncertainty regarding a cure from COVID-19. We don't know if a vaccine will be effective. We don't know if you can get re-effective. We don't know how long immunity uh, uh, will, will last. And we're certainly starting to see some second wave of infections uh, occurring, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere as they move into their autumn at the moment. But notwithstanding that incredible amount of uncertainty that we don't know the medical pathway out of this at the moment, there are some positives that, that, that have developed over the last few months. There has been considerable progress on vaccine trials. Uh, there's numerous uh, vaccines in phase three clinical trials, but we don't have any of the phase three clinical data yet. And there has been some good information on other treatments. Uh, monoclonal antibodies is probably the most serious breakthrough. Regenium uh, has released uh, some trial results. That's actually one of the drugs that Trump uh, uh, took, and the trial results have been very promising uh, uh, so, uh, so far. So that's not a vaccine, but it's a potential therapeutic cure for people who actually have uh, developed symptoms of COVID. We're seeing lower death rates from hospitalizations. I think the standard of care has improved. We've got a number of drugs that have been uh, used, but we should note the virus is still very deadly for the uh, for the elderly. We don't have a cure, but we do have an improvement in therapeutics uh, here. And we're seeing an increasing reluctance of governments to implement full lockdowns in many countries, even when they're experiencing uh, second waves. You know, society appears to be less fearful than they, uh, than they were. Maybe this is just simply uh, 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 fatigue. Uh, when we look at emerging markets, and this is an area that have been a major concern for us in terms of the economic uh, damage and whether we're going to get major runs on the currencies in some key emerging uh, markets is one of the tail risks that could lead to a 50% down. But the emerging markets appear to be more resilient, notwithstanding that the virus is running rampant in many emerging markets, uh, they're leaving their economies open uh, and the economic downside doesn't seem to be sort of at the, at the very sort of worst case outcomes. Of course, the human tragedy could be enormous in those, in those markets, but the economic downside is probably not as great as we, uh, we were uh, uh, fearing we're seeing substantial economic um, support um, here, particularly from governments in terms of expenditure and what the central banks have been doing. We've been seeing that in Australia. It's forecast in the United States that the budget deficit is going to be 16% of their national income this year. It's absolutely extraordinary the amount of stimulus expenditure uh, that's being uh, spent. And what I would say to you in terms of that range of sort of 20 to 50%, 20% up to 50% down, I would say the downside scenarios looks like it's less than, the, 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 than, than it was. So the, the extreme downside cases appear to be uh, mitigating at the moment as we go further into this, but this is a fluid uh, situation. Uh, we're still early into these second waves. We don't yet have the phase three uh, trial results. We could have some failures of these vaccines. We're starting to see some evidence of people getting reinfected, um, uh, which is quite typical for coronaviruses, um, uh, by the way. But we're starting, there was reports of another reinfection in the United States over, uh, uh, overnight. But we, we have been selectively reducing our cash as we're becoming... I guess, more comfortable about the extreme downside uh, uh, scenarios 
uh, here, but we've been doing it in areas that we think are less exposed um, to sort of ongoing downside from the from the pandemic. So we remain cautious, but I think we've we've, we've tightened our bounds of of the extreme downside uh, scenario. So a little bit optimistic, but still cautious, I would say, at the moment. Um, thanks, Hamish. And uh, we'll start grabbing some of the questions that, uh, that have come through. We've, again, tried to group them into uh, areas that are of most interest, if you like. And the, the first one I'm going to kick off is uh, back to the US election. How are global markets likely to react to a Joe Biden win, either with a retained Republican Senate or a new Democratic Senate? Yeah, well, at, at the end of the day, if the Republicans retain the Senate, I'm, I'm not um, nothing will really happen. It will be gridlocked in Washington, and I think the markets would be delighted with that, uh, uh, with, with, with the outcome. But the real issue is whether or not, as I was saying before, whether the Democrats get the trifecta um, here and whether or not they're, they're going to remove the filibuster, that, that key Senate uh, rule. You know, that could certainly spook the markets in terms of what the agenda may be of the Democrats. Uh, here is it going to be a really market-unfriendly, radical left uh, agenda. I would say that is probably unlikely um, to be to be the result, but we could well get some negative reactions from the markets if they if they get the trifecta in, in the markets speculating what, what may may happen. But on the other side, I think very quickly we're going to get a very large stimulus bill out of the Democrats post a Biden win. And I think markets will like that. And I think that's one of the reasons markets are strong at the moment. Uh, you know, the opinion polls are, are really firming in the Democrat favour here, but markets have been strengthening in the last in the last week or so. And I think that's the expectation you're going to get a large stimulus um, 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 implemented by the uh, by the Democrats. They're talking 1.6 trillion US dollars. Interest rates are very low. The US Federal Reserve is going to keep interest rates. Uh, uh, low, and if something goes wrong, I think you'll find the Fed stepping back in uh, and buying more assets under their quantitative easing uh, uh, program. But when you look at the portfolio as a whole in terms of the Democratic win, we do have to be mindful. It's very likely there's going to be an increase in the corporate taxation rate from 21 to 28 uh, percent. What have we done? We've got less exposure to US businesses, and we would have had 12 months or so ago. We're, we're, we're owning more businesses outside of the United States. Um, uh, the Democrats are probably going to push through further healthcare reform, not just as a direct result of, of what's going on with this pandemic, but an agenda that came in under Obama to further extend what was known as the Affordable Care Act um, and also to probably further regulate drug pricing in the United States. So, you know, you want to be careful around healthcare. We've got very minimal exposure We've got one healthcare stock in the portfolio, Novartis, that had very modest exposure uh, to that US uh, healthcare risk. Um, there's a very large decarbonisation agenda under the Democrats, and I think they've been very clear. Uh, Biden's been very clear. I think you're going to see a lot of investment in the renewables uh, uh, sector. At the end of the day, we're very positively skewed to that happening in the portfolio. We, we have over 10% of the portfolio now in three US utilities. Uh, the utilities are going to be benefited by further investments because the more they can invest, the higher they will, higher will be their growth rates um, uh, over, uh, over time. So some of the utilities in the last week have actually been performing pretty well on the, as these opinion polls have been uh, forming. But we also have to be mindful of technology regulation. We've got large exposures to a few US technology uh, uh, companies, so you know, we 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 we're very carefully monitoring uh, that. But I don't think you should be panicking at all as investors around a democratic win. But there could be some volatility as as markets settle down if they have a very strong win. Hey, equity mates, we're going to interrupt Hamish for a second to quickly hear from our sponsors. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lots of questions, Hamish, came through about the tensions, trade tensions between China and the U.S., um, this question uh, kind of summarises, does the decoupling of the US and China make your position in Chinese technology platform businesses more or less appealing? Right. This is, this is a great uh, question. Obviously, we've been increasing our exposure uh, to China, and particularly the two large Chinese technology platforms, Alibaba and Tencent, over the last year to, to, to 18 months. The first thing I would say is they add diversification to our portfolio. We haven't got all our eggs in, in the US technology um, uh, basket here. We're very, very interested in investing in businesses and areas we believe that can grow at very attractive rates in the next 10 plus uh, years. This is difficult. We're in a low growth world. Growth is can be very hard to find. Um, and the Chinese consumption story, in our view, of the next 10 to 20 years is a strong growth story, uh, despite the current tensions and the debates for decoupling. Uh, the rise of China and the consumer side of China, we don't think is going to be fundamentally affected by, by these tensions between the United States and China. This is one reason we like Starbucks and we like our investment in Estee Lauder because they are plays on Chinese consumption. Our investments in these Chinese technology platforms, Tencent and Alibaba, are also direct plays on China, but they're not really coupled with the United States. Um, they're both incredible businesses sitting at the intersection of what's really happening in the digital uh, economy. Um, you know, in a way, we may be more concerned with this decoupling debate Regarding our investment in Starbucks, we're very comfortable with our investment in Starbucks, but you could actually see that brand in China getting caught up if this gets much deeper because their business is based in China. Tencent and Alibaba's businesses are not based in the, in the United States. There's nothing really to decouple from because they have very, very minor parts of their profitability and futures in the, in the United States and there's relatively limited things that the United States can do to harm their businesses in China at the, at the end of the day. You know, so notwithstanding the, uh, these tensions and decoupling, we're very comfortable with the, the technology plays we have in, uh, in China. There are risks there. There are probably more domestic regulatory risks and other risks associated with China than they are the risks about the decoupling with the United States. Um, and Hamish, a, a live question just came through and I thought it was related given that you're mentioning Alibaba. The question is, will there be any positive benefits to Magellan that, can, that we can take advantage of with a spin-off from Alibaba of Ant Financial? Can you comment on that quickly? Hey, it's, a, it, it's a very good question. Now, Ant Financial is probably going to be the most sought-after IPO literally in, in, in history. It's probably going to have a valuation of upwards of $300 billion uh, US, US dollars. It is one of the best business models I've seen in 10 years. Um, it, it's a very four businesses within, within Ant, uh, at the Ant Group. One is a payments business, a very, very large payments business, probably facilitating payments in the order of 16 trillion US dollars. Uh, it, it's staggering. They earn small amounts of money on those, on those payments, but they get enormous amounts of data as all those payments are made. And what they're leveraging that data into is effectively three businesses they've got. One is an unsecured lending platform where loans to individuals, you could think of it, it's the credit card platform of China. So when you want to go and shop and you haven't got money and you want to draw down effectively on a credit card and you don't have a credit card, you can go to the Alipay app and you can be within seconds get a 
effectively an unsecured loan. Uh, for that, the Alibaba platform knows who you are, they know all about your data, and they effectively tender out that loan to a bank in the area in which you're in which you're shopping. And within seconds, you're extended that 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 loan, which you obviously it's going to bear interest. And Alibaba collects more, slightly over two and a half percent of the average daily balance of that loan as a technology fee. So they're not taking any credit risk, but they're connecting the individuals with lenders in the in the in the system. It's a very clever and very powerful business model, and they're doing the same thing for small business. And that's called their credit tech platform. They've also got a platform that's called investment tech. It is the funds management platform. Um, uh, so, it, so directly on your Alipay app, you can buy um, investments in mutual funds like Magellan. We don't operate in China, but like like Magellan, you could you could buy the Magellan fund if we if we operated in China directly on their platform. And Alibaba collects a technology fee of around sixty basis points. For equity products in, in China is rapidly, rapidly growing. There's 700 million consumers on that Alipay app in China uh, at the moment. The last one is an insurance platform where they effectively can originate insurance if you want your car insured or your life insured or health insurance or delivery to be insured from, uh, from the Alibaba group. You can, you can get insurance online and they're collecting as a commission 15% of insurance. Uh, premium. So it's a company that effectively has a royalty over the insurance industry, a royalty over the funds management industry, a royalty over the lending, the unsecured lending industry, and then a massive payments business. So it's a very, very good good business. Obviously, we've got a direct exposure or indirect exposure to Alibaba, which is our largest investment. Would we be interested in Ancroup? Yeah, at the right price. It's going to be very, very hard to get shares in in that, we're big investments in investors in Ali in Alibaba. We we understand Ant Group um, uh, uh, well, so you know, watch this space. You know, at the right price, if we could get an allocation, we'd be interested. But but there's some water to flow under the bridge in terms of the price hasn't been set uh, yet, and and it's going to have a lot of investors over the world. This is going to be very very oversubscribed in our view, notwithstanding it's going to be the largest IPO in history. Um, Hamish, moving back on to uh, COVID impact, um, if a vaccine isn't found in the next 12 months, what can we expect? That's an interesting question. You know, I'll try and dust off this crystal ball here, Frank. Uh, it really depends. Um, look, it, it depends about how governments and societies react to, to no vaccine being, being found. You know, what's going to happen to the healthcare systems if we don't have a vaccine? Will they be overwhelmed? Will the governments, uh, if we don't have a vaccine, be forced to have lockdowns again? But will the standard of care continue to improve? And will mortality rates actually continue to trend downwards, even if we don't have a vaccine? You know, if we don't have a vaccine, can we get to herd immunity? Are you going to get reinfected again? Or will society naturally start becoming more immune uh, to it without a vaccine? What's going to happen to the borders? Are we going to reopen borders or will we stay sort of permanently in lockdown to a total herd, herd uh, immunity. Of course, the longer this goes on without immunity in society, and a vaccine is the best way to get immunity in society if it, if it works, but the longer this goes on without immunity in society, the deeper the economic damage is, is going to be. So if we don't get a vaccine, um, this is certainly going to increase the economic uh, 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 risk. And what I would say to you is if some of these Phase three trials spectacularly fail in, in reaching their endpoints, and we can't actually distribute any of these vaccines that are in development at the moment. Um, you know that's going to probably be a major dampener for markets. Markets are expecting at least one of these uh, trials is going to have, be somewhat effective, and we're going to start rolling out ne ne next year. But that that is a great uh, un uh, unknown uh, at the moment, Frank. Um, let's talk about markets and uh, and macro. Why is there such a disconnect between the world economy and the share market? Yeah, Frank, I, I often get this uh, uh, question, and you have to remember the share market is a forecast of the future. It's effectively it's it's trying to discount all the cash flows of all businesses from now to Judgment Day 
I think what's worse, so so it, so it's it, it, it's factoring what's happening in the next twelve months, but it's also factoring what's happening in two years and five years and ten years and twenty years into into the future. Uh, where when you look at the economy, it's really a very static picture. It, it's really telling you what's happening today. So the unemployment can be terrible, and we could have a lot of credit losses, but that's not telling you what the unemployment rates can be in five and ten years into the future. So you often get this disconnect between the picture you see today, which is the economy, and the share market, which is a prediction of the of the of the future. And you know, you ask yourself at any point in time when you see these disconnects of whether or not the market is being irrational. Uh, you know, there's so much uncertainty at the moment, but the market has had a very, very strong rally and is close back to its sort of all-time uh, highs. You know, is that completely irrational. And I would say it's reflecting a number of things. It's reflecting the very low interest rates. Interest rates are lower around the world than they were back in February. And that's because the central banks have have stepped back in. And of course, the lower the interest rates, the higher valuations can be because the discount of future cash flows are more in a low interest rate uh, world. We've seen an incredible amount of fiscal stimulus and monetary support in the world. And there's probably also a view in markets that with all these trials, a vaccine will be found and we'll start to roll it out in 2021. You know, that last view may or may not be correct. If it's correct, the markets are being rational. But if we can't get any form of vaccine in that time frame, and this is going to run for two or three more years in terms of dealing with it, um, the markets may well be ahead of them Cells. But it, but it's it's very usual in, in periods like this that you do get these disconnects to what you're seeing uh, in the economy today to what the share market's actually valuing, which, as I say, is a, is a view of the future. But putting the value, market valuations to one side, we've just had another question come through. Specifically, the holdings in your portfolio, the valuations you're comfortable with. Yeah, well, yes, we are. We wouldn't be holding things if we weren't comfortable with the valuations. You know, we sold Apple fairly recently because we think it had passed our assessment of a fair fair value. Obviously, the market disagrees with us, but we think we're very disciplined on 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 valuation in our in our portfolio. It certainly reflects also our view of where interest rates are headed, which justifies higher valuations. It may have been the case five five years ago, but yes, we are comfortable with the valuations of the. Uh, stocks. Some are more fully valued than others in our in our in our portfolios. But when they get to points which we think above fair value, we have no hesitation in selling the investments. Um, this question's interesting, Hamish. Um, what's your most profound observation in the markets over the last twelve months? Well, I don't think I often have very profound observations on anything, Frank, as you know. Um, uh, but you know what I'd say is probably. You should never be surprised um, by what actually happens or how markets react to them. You know, you should expect the unexpected when 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 you're in um, uh, markets. Uh, events like this have happened in the past, and they're going to happen uh, in the future. You know, the scale of the economic damage from the pandemic was unexpected. Did we expect that? As a response to a virus that started in sort of December and in January and through February was going to result in in a total lockdown of most major economies in the world, that we were going to close our borders and live on prison island where we're not let out again, where we won't be able to travel between states in in Australia. I don't think any of us envisaged that. So it it was extreme. The the scale and willingness of governments to open the expenditure floodgates was also above expectations. I remember early on into this, I I, I gave an interview and suggested that that the governments may have to spend ten to twenty percent of their national income to cover the lost economic output, um, and and that seemed pretty extreme at the time. But we're seeing countries like Australia and the United States. That's exactly where they've landed. So, so the response has been, even though I made that suggestion, I, I, I it didn't really occur to me that it would actually happen that the governments would spend this amount of money to cover. Um, you know, there's almost been an income surplus in this in this recession because of the fiscal uh, expenditure. You know, how do we deal with with this to expect the unexpected? We want to build resilient portfolios. 
And, and that's what we do. So, so whenever we go to bed at night, we could have another event like this when we wake up in the morning, but I don't lose a lot of sleep over, uh, over that because, you know, we really do expect the unexpected. They're going to happen from, uh, from time to time and they shouldn't be something to panic, uh, you if you're, if you're long-term investors. Hamish, does the rising debt matter if interest rates remain low for a lot longer? Yeah, this is a very interesting topic today. It, it, it looks like governments don't think that it matters, but taken to extreme, of course, it, 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 it matters. Um, we're even hearing, you know, our own government, and this was a government that was so opposed to the debt and deficits disaster, taking on just extraordinary amounts of debt. And the argument is, is, is there's no interest cost from this. You know, interest rates are so low that the interest burden on all this debt is less than it was when debt was much lower and interest rates were, were higher, and therefore taking on this is almost free. And if you take this to the extreme, why wouldn't we just get rid of all taxation, make tax zero, and governments just borrow the money? Of course that isn't sustainable uh, to, to believe in this, and this even has a name now. It's called modern monetary theory, that when interest rates are very low or zero, you can effectively borrow money with no cost, and you're better to borrow the money and just spend it because it, it, it's never going to have a cost to you. But, of course, there will be a day of reckoning. Just because interest rates are super low today, you cannot assume they will always be low. And if you believe debt is free and debt has no consequences, you, must, you might as well believe in the tooth fairy. Uh, one day inflation will come back and one day interest rates will have to increase. But this period we're in could actually last for a very, very long period of time. And what worries me, the problem is, 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 is the longer this goes on, more and more politicians may start believing in the tooth fairy. And because they have relatively short election cycles, they what are the restraints on them just to spend the money today and believe in it's just it's just a free lunch. But ultimately there'll be a day of reckoning. So so I, I hope there are some rational voices at the table. I, I think it's been prudent in this last environment, last six months, the governments have been. Uh, aggressive in their in their response to 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 the situation we're facing, but to think uh, think politicians can just spend money with no consequences in the in the future. I, I think future generations are uh, um, are going to have a lot to bear. I'm, I'm not being critical of what's happening at the moment. I just hope this uh, this 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 trend doesn't um, get too much momentum. So, Hamish, not unrelated, a question has just come through um, asking about your view on whether inflation is likely to return or not and why you have that view. Yeah, I, I think we're in a period of, of low inflation for a very extended period of time. Um, you know, we, 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 we'd had a massive... Um, long economic recovery since 2009 and we didn't see any evidence of inflation and there's a whole series of reasons why that's uh why that's occurring we we have excess capacity in the world's uh system we have fundamental demographic changes happening in um in in, in many uh countries which forces increased savings uh in society um, productivity has been been, been, been been falling. So I think there's a lot of reasons why we're in this cycle, particularly post this pandemic. I think we've probably got a larger sort of excess capacity in the world's system. So we're probably going to get a very extended period of, 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 of low inflation. Um, but that doesn't mean we're always going to have low inflation, Frank. No. Uh, at, the, at, at, at the end of the day, and you know, you know, the, these go in cycles. We could be in a long-term cycle of low inflation, but assuming that's going to last forever, and therefore we can do very reckless things in this environment, particularly uh, with monetary policy. Uh, at the end of the day, it may come back to 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 to, to bite us. So, am I worried about inflation in the next five years? No, I'm not worried about inflation in the next five years. But if inflation comes back, it will be very, very bad for markets because central banks will have to respond with rising interest rates and rising interest rates 
uh, are the enemy of, of markets. But I think we're in a, I think we're in a low inflation, low rate world for, for the period, uh, period ahead. But we're also thinking about ultimately the risks for that and, and, and inflation and wanting to make sure we also have some inflation protection in our longer term thinking uh, of how we're allocating assets. So given that uh, that view on rates lower for longer, I mean, where do you see the biggest impact for such a long period? Yeah, well, you really think about interest rates and why they why they why they're low, um, and 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 you you have to ask they're they're a result of this sort of low economic growth and low inflation uh, uh, period. You know, low interest rates have a one off uplift in valuations by reduction in the in the discount or interest uh, rate. But in the long term, once you've lowered interest rates, you know, equities should reflect the underlying income growth. So we've had a benefit of equities sort of being turbocharged in the last sort of 10 years as interest rates have continued to fall and we've had another step down in the last uh, uh, six months. But as I say, that is a one-off um, uh, uh, effect. You know, moving forward after that one-off effect of reducing uh, interest rates, if we're in this environment, it probably means we're in a low growth and low inflation environment, which means incomes are going to grow more slowly. Uh, profitability is going to grow more slowly in aggregate. And that's going to be a very difficult environment for investors to navigate. They can't simply put their money in the bank and earn any interest income on that. And without interest rates going further down, um, equity returns are probably going to have to reflect these very low growth rates and low growth in in profitability, which means you're going to have to be very selective uh, uh, moving uh, forward. And you're going to have to really find some reliable growth in this world. And that's what we're seeking to do at, at, at Magellan. We're, we're trying to find where the reliable growth in the world, in this world, which low interest rates are telling you we're probably going to have very low growth uh, and we're going to have low inflation. So how do you navigate around that world but still earn people decent returns on their uh, on their investments. Hey, equity mates, quickly interrupting Hamish here to have a quick breather and hear from our sponsors. Nice and topical, Hamish. Um, what's your medium-term outlook for FANG versus BAT? And just let me define BAT. BAT apparently is Beidou, Alibaba and Tencent. I think people know what FANG is, but there's BAT. Yeah, well, it's very interesting that you frame the question or the, the who's asked the question has has termed it fang verse bat. I don't really regard this as sort of a verse one versus the other. Uh, they're subject to quite different risks. The big tech platforms in 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 China, in particular, versus the US tech uh, platforms. You know, many of these companies are very highly advantaged businesses. I would say that that most of these. Baidu, I probably wouldn't put in this camp, but most of these companies are the most powerful business models we've literally seen in the last 100 years. You probably have to go back to the uh, railroad barons back 100 years ago. There are, there are very, very strong network effects in place in these businesses, and they're very light in terms of the capital usage, probably outside of, of Amazon here. And I call this sort of capitalism without capital. It is truly extraordinary. You know, if you look at the FANG, they are really global plays, ex-China on e-commerce, digital advertising, cloud computing, uh, entertainment, particularly video streaming if you take Netflix. If you look at the big Chinese tech platforms, actually they play in China, but they're broader. They're even broader than the FANG are. They, 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 they're plays on e-commerce, digital advertising, cloud computing, entertainment, which includes gaming, video and music. They're very on the digitalization of enterprise processes. They're into payments, financial disintermediation. They're into local services like, like, like delivery. So those platforms are even broader than the FANG in, in, in the United uh, uh, states, but all these companies are incredibly advantaged. They're of course going to attract the attention of regulators when they're in this in this in this position. We like to diversify our play, but I, I don't regard that. Oh, you should be in the Chinese platforms, or you should be in the US ones. You know, all of these companies are e extraordinary. The real question is, what are the risks, and what are they worth? You know, we 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 want to buy them when we think they're. 
they're trading at less than we think they're, they're worth taking the risk into account, but we're also wanting to diversify those risks. But it's not a fang versus bad. It's, it, it's, it's, it's all of them are extraordinary in their own ways. So, again, conscious of time, Hamish, um, there was a question here. Could you please discuss the social dilemma given in, given our investments in uh, Alphabet, Google and um, Facebook? Um, well, The Social Dilemma is actually an important documentary. It, it, it's recently been released on Netflix, and if people haven't watched it, I would encourage you, if you're just interested in investing, I do think it raises some very important issues, and it's really on the power of the social networks in particular, particularly very focus, focused on Facebook in the, in the United States. It touches on, on, on part of Google's business uh, as well. The documentary is very, very focused on the social harm that comes from these platforms. Um, it, it, it's really talking about, you know, how what they do to keep the users engaged on their platforms, like sending you notifications that ping on your phone, you pick your phone up and go back and look at your Facebook, who said something. It's also about their recommendation and news feeds and, and, and how they're doing that and how they can reinforce sort of prejudices in society, but keep showing you the stuff you want to uh, read and maybe not getting alternative, more balanced uh, uh, views. It's not surprising the platforms are, uh, are using algorithms and things trying to get users engaged on their platforms for as long as they can. You know, it's a, it, that's what capitalism in. You, you're trying to, uh, you know, any shopping centre wants you in their shopping centre as long as they can keep you in their, in their shopping centres. And they, these are very important issues. I would say that the documentary doesn't actually provide any solutions. And, and very importantly, I don't think balances really the social good that has come from these platforms as well. It's not a one-way street of, of, of bad. There is very important social inclusions of, of in connecting with your friends, connecting with your family, but very important in connecting with interest groups, and particularly if you had a child who had a rare disease or something, finding other uh, families around the world who are going through the same issues. So, so there is a lot of benefits that come from social inclusion of these platforms. And, you know, the, the platforms, they've actually changed their algorithms uh, that, of course, got people more engaged, but they've actually changed their algorithms from time to time to stop people just watching videos and, and, and other factors. I, I think it's an important question to get the balance right. You know, many of these platforms are still uh, uh, young um, here. Uh, what we have to think about as investors, do documentaries like The Social Dilemma, are they going to cause a knee-jerk reaction from politicians in particular to put probably not well thought through sort of regulatory responses in relation to this because the general public becomes uh, uh, concerned. Of course, we're watching that very, very carefully. I, I'm, you know, quite confident, I'm kind of an optimistic person, that, that we will find the right balance. We will get more regulations on privacy. Uh, we will get more regulations on content um, and, and penalise the platforms when they... Uh, when they get it wrong, and they they will find a balance. We don't think these platforms are going to be outlawed and closed down can, uh, completely, but there, there there are issues that as these things grow up and they develop, um, these questions have to be asked, and therefore it's a very important documentary. It's making us think about the risk uh, as well in relation to these uh, investments. But it's it's well worth watching if you haven't watched it. The social dilemma on Netflix. So Hamish, are you concerned with increasing? regulatory kind of oversight and involvement and its impact on our platform holdings? Yeah, well, what I'd say is whenever you get these sort of near monopoly um, businesses like these that are, that are very, very large in their nature, of course you're going to attract the attention of, 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 of regulators. This is particularly around the risk predominantly about US platform investments, Alphabet that owns Google uh, and Facebook. Uh, it's also going to attach Amazon and Apple that we're not owning at the moment, but really Alphabet and Facebook, you know, they're, they're, they're probably 12% of our portfolio. So you need to put in context, there's risk around here. The risks facing Alphabet and Facebook are somewhat uh, uh, different. You know, Alphabet's more around sort of antitrust issues about preferring their own services on their own platforms. Facebook are very much around the issues we talked around, around particularly around content on that platform and who's responsible for that. Both of them have antitrust. They've made acquisitions uh, in, the, in the past. They're quite different to the risks facing the Chinese 
technology uh, uh, platforms. It could be gaming risks if you're in Tencent in, uh, in, 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 in China. What we think is important to actually have exposed to different risks and making sure that you're appropriately diversified uh, between the different uh, uh, risks. You know, the United States is attempting to ban WeChat uh, which is the social platform, the messaging platform of Tencent in the United States. We're not overly concerned. That's just simply not material to, to the Tencent investment uh, case. You know, we've talked about the Facebook uh, uh, risks. The one we're watching very closely is the regulation of content and both sides of the political aisles have the opposing views uh, on this. You know, the, the Republicans want complete free speech um, and therefore, you should be able to say whatever you want on this platform. And of course, the Democrats don't like don't like extreme speech or things that aren't true, and and, and want them to take down sort of very right wing uh, speech on that. So it's a very difficult problem uh, to to solve. We do huge amounts of due diligence on these specific risks attaching to the different uh, uh, companies, particularly in Europe and in, in the United States. The good thing is a lot of these risks are very visible. There's a lot of public debate. You're not going to suddenly wake up one morning and see a piece of legislation you've never seen before. That's not how the legislative uh, process work. We think we're in a solid position to evaluate the risk. We continue to believe these companies are uh, attractive investments despite this, uh, uh, despite this risk. And, and as I say, that we've got these risks diversified within the, in the portfolio, but you can't own these great companies near monopolies without getting regulatory risk and you have to evaluate that risk. So a question here, does Magellan's long-term thesis of 9% growth target still hold true given everything that's occurred post the pandemic? Frank, this is a really, really good question. You know, um, you know, overall markets returns have been above profit growth and that's because of the falling uh, interest rates we've seen, as Warren Buffett has described, interest rates are the gravity of markets. You lower interest rates and everything goes up in value. You lift interest rates and down they will go in, in, in value. As I was stating before, we're probably seeing the benefit of falling interest rates. Maybe it's not 100% reflected if rates stayed at these levels, but a lot of the reduction in interest rates have been reflected in market uh, uh, valuations here, which probably means that moving forward in the absence of rates going even lower, um, you know, world profitability is not going to grow anywhere near 9% per annum. We're probably going to be in a very low growth world for the next decade. Um, and therefore, we're probably going to have equity returns in aggregate materially below 9% per annum. And you ask yourself, well, how are we going to set that target if, if the bar's got higher, if it's got uh, tougher. And all I'd say to you is we're running a concentrated portfolio. We're looking for very unique sources of growth uh, in, in, in the portfolio. Um, and the simple answer is we're not going to lower the bar just because it's got harder. You know, we're going to stick with the target. We think we can achieve the target. Um, uh, but there's no guarantees of that. I don't want people sort of running away and thinking they're going to get 9% per annum. It, it will be judged over a full investment cycle, sort of seven years, not over sort of six months. Uh, 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 period. But when you do things in a concentrated fashion, you can very selectively where you want to invest. We still feel comfortable that you can do it in that type of portfolio. But markets in aggregate delivering 9% per annum over the next decade, I, I, I think that's a, I, I think that's a real stretch unless we get into a real world of negative rates. Um, there's a question just come through, Hamish, where do retirees find, self-funded retirees find income? from investments when interest rates are so low and there are some dividends being uh, cut and diminished. Um, do you have a view on that? Yeah, all I would say is probably have some caution uh, here. I, the, the typical thing you do when you can't get any return on on um, uh, very sort of, you know, conservative assets like a bank deposit or maybe a bank hybrid is to, is to go into more risky investments. And I think there will be a lot of promoters who come up with some very fancy investments that that, that sound good and going to deliver you uh, income. I, I would I put your hat on and ask if you really understand what they're what, what they're trying to sell you. Often these sort of investments are illusory. Um, really, a lot of the income is manufactured; it's not real. 
um, and you're probably taking on more risk. So, so it's a it's a it's a tough one. I, I can't say it's easy. We're we you know, in the not too distant future, we we want to um, uh, we're planning to release a new retirement product that that is trying to answer part of this question. People are going to have to take a bit more equity risk, but also uh, we're trying to mitigate that, that that risk in the in the product. But I don't have a simple uh, uh, solution. But I'd be I'd be careful about just reaching for income and going down the risk spectrum uh, 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 too much um, here. It's, it's a difficult world uh, uh, to be in uh, to be in here in terms of getting income out of sort of fixed income products without taking a lot of sort of credit risk and, and other risk on in your in your portfolios. I wish I had a simple answer for, for, for people I, I I don't. I think it's a it, it's a challenging world where we're we're entering. Well hopefully quality managed funds have a place in that uh, in that self-under retiree strategy, Hamish. Um, there is one interesting one that just came through that I thought we'd uh, we'd cover off. How has COVID nineteen and the lack of international travel impacted your ability to effectively assess potential investment opportunities? Not being able to meet with management, I just thought that was interesting. How do you? Yeah, I, I think it's a really good uh, uh, question. Actually, it's been a really interesting learning period. We've actually found when we haven't been able to travel. We've had more frequent and deep engagement on Zoom and Microsoft Teams with management. I'm asking our analysts to, to ask senior management to join us on video conferences quite frequently. We're getting chief executives of some of the largest companies in the world, and we're now inviting maybe 16 people from Magellan to those meetings. That, that The discussions tend to be very timely. They're contemporaneous with what's with what's occurring because the executives, just like many people on this call, before uh, COVID happened, I think most people, if we said join a Zoom call, they would have thought we were talking about going in the car or something. They People would just, and they wouldn't have joined the call because they weren't used to it. But now because executives are doing this day-to-day life, they're going, yeah, sure, no problems. We'll set up an hour for a call. But now I'm bringing 16 people to the meeting. I could not turn up to a meeting in New York and say, do you mind coming to your conference room and I'll bring 16 colleagues with me? But also, I would have had to take in 16 people probably out of the office for one week and spend all the money on, on the airfares and everything else. So, so what I'm finding is we're actually getting more frequent contact, probably more timely contact, and deeper contact with more of our people in this world than we were when we're travelling. I'm not saying we will never travel again because there are there are certain relationships you build and other things that, that are done in a face-to-face uh, a world. But I think I think we're going to be better off. I think because of this changing work environment, we're going to be more deeply engaged with uh, with companies. We'll be more frequently engaged with them because we just won't be relying on a trip. But but visiting them physically is going to be important as uh, 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 as well. But to date. It hasn't been a, it hasn't been a negative. It's actually we've 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 learned some really positive things from the engagement. So, Hamish, just in the last minute or two that we've got, um, do you have any advice for younger advisors who are fairly new to the industry and navigating this pandemic early in their careers? Well, the first thing I would say is expect the unexpected. This isn't the first sort of shock you're going to see in your careers. If you stay in this industry or as an investor or an advisor and you're young and you see something uh, like this, it's very important that you stay the course. Investing is a long-term business. It, it's not determined over three or six months. It's determined over years and years and years. It's all about finding the right businesses and the right investments and investments that you believe can, can compound your wealth at a decent clip over a long period of time. You know, if you find very decent businesses that you're very confident in their long-term prospects, you can largely ignore these short-term issues like we've seen in the last uh, six months. You know, when you find a great company with great long-term prospects, you know, you can largely sit on your backside. I, I know it doesn't seem that, that exciting for people who want to trade in and out of things every, every moment. The great wealth is built out of compounding. It's not built out of trading uh, at the at the end of the day. My best advice to somebody who's young in the game is understand the power 
of compound interest. As a young person, you have a major advantage over the vast majority of people on this call, and your advantage is your age. You have more time to do it, and time is super valuable in this game. As Benjamin Franklin famously said, he's one of the founding fathers of the United States of America. Uh, he was actually a very good investor and inventor, and his quote on compound interest said, money makes money, and the money that money makes makes more money, makes more money. And that's what investing is all about. It's about finding the right investments and letting them work for you over the long term and not get caught up in this short-term noise like this election coming up in the United States or the pandemic occurring at the moment. Great businesses will compound your wealth over time. Thanks, Hamish. It's a pleasure, Frank. And thanks, everyone, for uh, watching this uh, this live Zoominar. We'll be posting a recording of, uh, of the webinar on our website in case you want to forward it on to colleagues and friends. Uh, you're more than welcome to. Um, it'll also feature uh, in our quarterly update, which uh, is going out on Thursday, uh, and in particular for advisors uh, and stockbrokers who want to claim some CPD points, uh, again, you're able to do that via Thursday's investor letter. Uh, separately, we'll be responding, trying to respond to the many questions that we weren't specifically able to address. Uh, we'll have a, uh, we'll be in contact over the next few days. Please stay safe, and thanks again, Hamish, and everyone for joining us. Thank you. Hey, Equimates, Bryson Ren again. We hope you enjoyed that interview from Magellan's Chief Investment Officer, Hamish Douglas. We certainly did and we certainly learned a lot from it. So hope you guys did as well. Absolutely. And just a quick reminder that at the start of this week, our Get Started Investing ETFs for Beginners series went live where we sat down with the experts from BetaShares to unpack all there is to know about ETFs when you are starting your investing journey, everything from the basics through to understanding how to find the right ETF for you. And then also importantly, what to do once you've bought the administrative side of things and managing your portfolio. So head over to our Get Started Investing feed to listen to that series and we had a great time recording it but also if you would like to watch it on youtube it is available so head over to our youtube channel equity mates investing podcast to check it out there ren that's a wrap we'll chat next week nice one sounds good thanks for listening to equity mates investing podcast a production of equity mates media please remember that everything you hear in equity mates investing podcast is general advice only the content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives specific financial circumstances or goals the host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 